And as you are being seated, if you would take out your copies of God's Word and look at Exodus chapter 20 with me. As we continue in our series through the Ten Commandments, we'll be in verse 14 today. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 14. Listen carefully, because this is the word of the Lord to you today. Lord God commands, you shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Heavenly Father, we have before us A difficult text, a text in which our culture and and our own hearts rebel against in many ways. So I ask that as we look at this together, that our hearts would be convicted where we have broken this commandment. And may our souls also be comforted in the gospel hope that you have given to us in Jesus. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sex is oftentimes seen as something that we just shouldn't talk about, and much less so from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. And there are a few reasons why, I think, but I think each one, each of these reasons illustrates exactly why we need to talk about these topics. One reason might be that we think that sex is something that is worldly that has been owned by our culture. And because of that, we assume that sex is equal with sin. And we could be forgiven for thinking that way because this gift from God has been twisted and used in almost every facet of our culture to be done sinfully. We see this used to, in our movies and television shows, even TV shows supposedly for children, or advertising. This is something that we can then assume is something that we then shouldn't talk about or shouldn't have any real relationship with. But as we'll see here in the Scriptures, indeed, from the very beginning of the Scriptures, this was God's idea. In fact, as one commentator and preacher called it, this is God's second best idea. And we need to look to this as something that that we can learn about and something that we can even learn from, as we'll see later on. I think maybe another reason perhaps why we don't talk about sex very often, especially in a church context, is because in our culture this is seen as traditional sexual morality, rather dismissively titled. And we can see discussions about waiting for marriage or purity and modesty seem hopelessly out of touch with where our culture currently is. And in fact, we can even point to examples even in the church where this has not been always preached very well. This is not a new problem. This is something that goes all the way back to the early centuries of the church. In fact, revered church fathers in the three and four hundreds, Ambrose and Augustine, looked at sex with, with suspicion, even in marriage. And this was no exception when we got to the 90s, when many of us were coming up and looking in youth groups or teaching youth groups and looked to these things and said it's just the idea of purity rings or waiting until marriage would guarantee you long-lasting and satisfying sexual union, these things weren't always taught very well. Indeed, and the motivations that I was given in youth group were unrealistic and honestly wrongly motivated as a reason to obey the Lord. 
But it's very because our culture has twisted these things. And it's because the church hasn't always spoken about this well. Is the reason why we need to in this day and age. And finally, maybe a reason why we don't like talking about sex all that often, especially in a church context, is because we feel guilty when we do. All of us, in some way, shape, or form, have broken this seventh commandment. This is not just a physical act, but we can see, as we saw in our New Testament reading from Jesus, that it's even down to our thoughts that we can break this command. None of us escape this. But that's not a reason to not talk about it. In fact, we need to talk about it to show that there is gospel hope, even for those of us that have broken this commandment, even in the most heinous of ways. The Lord still offers forgiveness and transformation. And that's what I hope that we will see today. Now, you'll look in your outlines on the back of the prayer guide. You'll see I have three points today, departing from my usual two. I promise it won't happen again. But we have our three points that I want us to look at. The number one, as we look into these commandments, and we're looking at this in terms of freedom, it says we are freed to enjoy God's good gift. This is point number one. We'll be taking a look at God's vision for what sex is supposed to be. And the second point is that the world still tries to twist God's design. And we'll look and see that Satan is very unimaginative, and all he can do is twist what God has provided And then in number three, we'll see that God forgives and rescues those who have abused this gift. And that's what I hope that we'll see today in our very short passage, but very deep one. So let's take a look at it. This command is very, very simple. In fact, in the original language, it's only two words, a very short commandment, that you shall not commit adultery. And to read this as narrowly as possible, what this is referring to is that a married, persons who are married, a husband and a wife that are married together, neither one of these parties is supposed to have sex with someone outside of that marital union. Now, is that the only thing that this commandment forbids? No, it doesn't. As we can see from our New Testament reading, what Jesus talks about. Jesus is not inventing anything new. He's just expounding what this commandment has always been. And indeed, as we could, as you, if you remember from our previous commandments, that these are, were, were meant to be broad, general categories that had many specific applications. And that's what we're going to see today. And I thought it would be a good place to start as we... As we recapture what was God's vision for this most holy of unions. And for that, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. Turn there with me, if you will. Uh, Keep your Bibles up and out or your Bible apps open because we're going to be looking at a lot of different places today. And it's here as we're going to look at this that we are reminded that this gift of sexuality is a gift from God, but was meant to be used in a very particular way. He could have designed us to reproduce by just splitting in half like some sort of amoeba or something like that. He could have done it that way, but he decided to do it this way. And we need to see why. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 2. Here Eve has been brought to Adam, and here verse 24 says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
This is a foundational text that the Bible keeps pointing back to over and over and over again, especially in the New Testament, as we're going to see. In fact, Jesus himself refers to this specific command, if you'll turn with me now over to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 4. Here, the context is Jesus is speaking about divorce. People are coming up to Jesus and saying, are we, are we allowed to divorce our spouse for any reason? In verse 3, and then Jesus answers in verse 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? Then he expands on that in verse 6. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here, Jesus is basing on this foundational text in Genesis chapter 2 of the foundation for this permanence of marriage. And particularly this usage of the phrase one flesh. When a man and a woman come together in a covenant of marriage, The Lord now sees them as if they were one person. So the idea of splitting up this marriage would be a little bit like splitting somebody in half. There's there's no way one can do that, even for a biblical reason, where there's not damage and hurt as we go through this. But it's interesting in that that this is referred to as a one-flesh union, because there's another place that the New Testament expands on. Turn one more time to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here, Paul develops this theme in a really interesting way as he builds off of the Genesis 2 passage, a lot like Jesus does. You can see how Scripture is commenting on Scripture and is referring to itself. In 1 Corinthians 6, Look what he does with the one flesh union in verse 15. Here he's talking about the purpose and the use of our bodies. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Now, it's patently obvious what Paul is referring to as a union with a prostitute. This is one flesh union is being drawn back to this sexual act. So here in marriage, this covenant that one is made with each other is consummated in this sexual relationship. That there is this glue that binds these two together in a wonderfully profound way. And that's why Paul warns us, like, there is no such thing as a casual fling over here. This is a deep, soul-unifying reality that's happening here. And one should not enter into it lightly. Indeed, one commentator referring to this passage had put it this way. It says, no one can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. You bring your soul with you as you do this. So this is a profoundly beautiful thing. And in marriage, this is a necessary, wonderful thing that the Lord has provided. The Lord's wonderful, isn't he? 
He invents marriage to have a solemn covenant between a man and a woman to be together for life. And then says that the way that you solidify this covenant and draw closer together is through this one flesh sexual union. This is a beautiful thing that the Lord calls you to do and calls us to enjoy it, which is something that's sometimes seen as unexpected coming from the church. But this is exactly what God the Bible commands us to do. The Bible does not blush in its calls to enjoy this wonderful gift that God has given to us. In fact, wrote a whole book about it in the Song of Solomon. Or if we want to say, it's like, well, I think the Song of Solomon was allegorical. Well, fine, you can turn, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Where the Bible says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. This is a beautiful picture of enjoyment in this gift that God has given to us. But again, this gift has got a place. And that place is in marriage to be enjoyed there. I remember a pastor I had growing up and talked about that a fire is a wonderful thing in a fireplace. It's a disastrous thing in the attic. This gift is a lot like that. This is a beautiful, soul-mingling, holy bond between a man and a woman, sanctioned, designed by God to be practiced and enjoyed But when we betray that process, we bend outside of that. That's when we find that this, what once was a gift, we drag and twist into something worse. And this becomes all the more heinous as we realize what this is supposed to point to. Let me take you to one more passage in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. Here, Paul is making an analogy of the intimacy and love that comes in a marriage. He's not using a sexual metaphor per se, but what he's talking about is the intimacy and love that is experienced between two people that have consummated this relationship. Look how he compares this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. It says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For if no one, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Look what he says here, verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. What Paul is not, is not talking about a sexual relationship with Christ. But what he is referring to is this intimacy of knowing and being known and loving this deep unification that's supposed to be in marriage in its ideal form. That's what this is supposed to pointing to, is the relationship and love and intimacy that Christ has with his church. He knows his church Deeply. All of her flaws, too. 
and continues to love and be dedicated to her. That's the vision for our sexuality. That's a beautiful thing. This is what we need to be preaching to the world. This is not just some casual biological response. But this is a soul-changing activity when it's kept in its proper place and is a soul-destroying thing when it's twisted, which is what we'll see now as we look into our second point, that the world tries to twist God's gift. C.S. Lewis had wisely said that Satan has never created anything because he can't. All he can do is take the good things that God has made and try to twist them out of their original purpose. And that's exactly what we see here in our world. Sex is unfortunately no exception to Satan's twistings. And he has created a ton of lies surrounding this particular activity. And there's no way that I'm able to say everything that there needs to be said about this topic in a single sermon. So I want to focus on just one lie that Satan tells us about our sexuality. And it's this, that sex is only about you. That sex is about selfishness. After all, it's your body, right? You should get to determine to do with it what you want because it's yours. That's what the world will tell us. That's the lie that Satan tries to tell us. Your body is for your use, your pleasure. No one can say anything else about it. But that's not what the Bible says about your body. In fact, your body, as it says in Scripture, is not even owned by you. In fact, two different beings own your body. The first one is the Lord who owns your body. And the second one is your spouse or your future spouse. Where do I get these things? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. We'll be back here again and be mostly around this portion of Scripture for the rest of our time together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. starting in verse 12. Here, Paul is talking about some phrases from the Corinthians that have been misused. See if you can hear similar things to what we hear in our own culture. Again, Satan's created nothing new. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, Paul responds. All things are lawful for me, But Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, Corinthians would say, the culture would say. And Paul responds, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for or because you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the vision that Paul, and speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has for our bodies. We don't own it ourselves. This is something that we are to submit to the Lord. Now, this is a very countercultural message, and it always has been, by the way. America's not unique in this. But this is something that we can see all over our culture. Any other design for sex that is outside of the marriage of a man and a woman, lifelong and forever, is a twisting of this. And it's telling to God, you know, your program just doesn't work for me. I'm just not feeling this. Well, of course you're not feeling it. You're a sinner. None of us feel God's program for this. All of us want control of our own bodies. But that's not what God gives. Because God wants something better for you than your bodily autonomy. And this is where our culture has gone wrong with homosexuality and transgenderism. Looks to our body and says, I don't like the way you've made me. I don't like the way you're telling me how I need to use this. I want to do something else with it. That's not what we're called to be. That's not what our culture is supposed to be. In fact, with our culture, as I've said it before, preaches sex plus selfishness. What's in it for me? Where can I gain something from this? This is part and parcel to pornography. It's a perfect example of this lie. All of the pleasure, none of the commitment. And the pleasure is a lie. It's temporary and it fades Unless I think we're just picking on our own culture war, this would, even re- this would even refer to using sexual pleasure on yourself. Betraying God's purpose that this gift is meant to be shared, not hoarded and held to ourselves. In fact, to do so, as one commentator put it, is self-worship. Wanting to take and gather up as much pleasure for ourselves as possible. Now, each of these sins that I've listed here, there is varying degrees of heinousness and mentioned in the scriptures. But all of these things is very clear what the Lord is saying here, what the purpose for sex is. And anything that falls outside of that is outside of God's boundaries. So your body is owned by the Lord, whether you're married or not. The Lord has a call on your body. But if you're married, there's an additional person that owns your body, and that's your spouse. Let's continue into chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Here, Paul is trying to counter a misunderstanding that the Corinthians are trying to have. They're going in the other direction and saying, it's like, all right, well, we don't want to do, have sexual relations at all. Chastity, celibacy, that's the highest form of our use of sexuality. 
Paul does not go there. He does not say that celibacy is a higher form of holiness than marriage, but that both are good. But here, look at what Paul talks about in marriage specifically. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Hear what Paul is saying here. And as commentators pointed out, this was rather revolutionary for a time in which it was a male-dominated sphere in which the husband could demand practically anything. But here in this passage, notice the immense equality that's given between husbands and wives in this area. Paul is quite clear as to what this is meaning. So yes, the husband owns his wife's body, but this doesn't mean that he can just demand relations whenever he wants to because his body is owned by his wife. The beautiful balance here. And here, note that Paul is talking about almost this duty of sexuality. And he was saying that it can be suspended only by agreement and even for the most holy of reasons of prayer is meant to be a temporary thing that is meant to then come back together lest Satan find a foothold and bring about temptation. You can see this picture of, how, of sex as an unselfish act of giving one to another. Again, sex isn't supposed to be selfish, but a giving to each other. Now, does that mean that you can never let your spouse know about your needs or desires or communicating that or asking for that? No. But in order to be unselfish, sometimes when the answer is no, it needs to be respected. Pouting or complaining about that is a selfishness. But on the other hand, constant and long-term denials without some sort of overriding necessity, like a major surgery or something like that, that is also supposed, that is also wrong and selfish. Paul balances this incredibly well under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we can see this is something that we are, the, the, our, our bodies are owned by each other in the spouses. So this will prohibit the one extreme of constant denial and the other extreme of forcing oneself onto another. Both of these things are wrong. This is about to be a mutual love and giving to one another. And may I say, just as an aside, a lot of times when we find issues here in this marital intimacy, usually the issues, aside from medical diagnoses or things like that, usually problems here start much further back. Selfishness here almost certainly means that there is selfishness outside the bedroom as well. 
And that if we find here is a chore and unsatisfying, it might be because on the outside, we're not treating each other well. If we leave our spouse with the children all week, disappear the entire weekend, and then complain when asked to help around the house, is it any wonder that your wife is not enthused? Or if we think that if we're being belittled, verbally hurt, that there's going to be intimacy there. It's not. Certainly not the type of the portrait of intimacy that Scripture has painted of a beautiful, joyous coming together. But I may also say that problems here, selfishness here by one spouse or the other, does not excuse sins on the outside. I've heard men claim that they had to turn to pornography because their wives were cold. That is not an excuse. You do not get to sin because somebody else sinned. We do not get to have affairs because your husband doesn't understand you. We want to follow these scriptures to avoid temptation as much as we can. But when our spouse is being selfish or when, our, or when we're doing something wrong here, it does not give us excuse to explore outside of that. It can feel like the right thing to do can feel like you're owed something. There's that selfishness again. There's that lie. This is about you. It's about your pleasure. It's not. All of these ways that we've seen sex twisted pulls it away from what it's supposed to be. But imagine if it was more like what we saw here in the Scriptures, a joyous of giving, to one another. We can see this would point to a far greater pleasure. Something that trains us to be unselfish in the most intimate parts of our lives will spill out into the other parts of our lives or vice versa. And points us ultimately to the greatest pleasure, which is a relationship with God. John Piper once preached a sermon series called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. Uh, This is what this is pointing to. This intimate, loving relationship that you have with your spouse is meant to point to this eternal love that one day you will share with Christ. But now you may be sitting here saying, well, wait a minute. I don't know if that's where I'm heading. Because I've broken this commandment in a lot of ways. We didn't even get around to expanding on looking with luster and these other things where more of us, I, I think, will fall into than the physical actions. But I'm here to tell you here in verse or in point number three, that God forgives and rescues those who have even abused his gift of sex and sexuality. Maybe you have fallen into pornography. Maybe you've had an affair, but God can forgive you. Even if you've had had an affair with your best friend's wife, killed your friend, and then lied about the whole thing, you can be forgiven because that's what Psalm 51 is about. 
King David. We sang that prayer just moments ago. It's exactly what David did. And and he was, of course, repentant, confessed his sins, put it into the nation's hymn book, Psalm 51. Does not deny the reality of what his sin is. And then asks for cleansing, turns from it, asks for forgiveness, and trusts in God's grace. And that's the path that you need to take. Because you have an advantage, Noel would, that David didn't have. Because you've gotten to see how God was going to be gracious. How on earth is God able to forgive a sin like that? It's the death of his son. Our sexual immorality calls for the death penalty. And why not? If we're able to betray our own spouse, who won't we betray? And yet... And yet, God provides forgiveness through the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus never sinned in this way. Every single thought, word, and action. Never told a dirty joke. Never took a second look. Never committed any physical immorality. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And then died the death that we deserved to die. Taking all of those visits to those porn sites. All of those times where we've looked askance. All of those times where we were selfish with our spouse. All of those sins placed on Christ. Where God could pour out his wrath on his son. To annihilate our sins. And then Jesus died and then rose again, showing that we will one day be be raised again one day, that we can be forgiven, that God has accepted the payment. But more than that, you can be transformed. One last look at 1 Corinthians 6. Here Paul is talking about people that have been saved from things. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the promise. Not only can you be forgiven, but you can be transformed to where you can look at pornography as something that was in the past and it's been left behind. Even homosexual desires, something that our culture says will never go away. The Lord can look to this and say, such were some of you. Does that mean it's going to be instant? No. Sanctification is a lifelong process of the Lord's working to transform you. But that's the promise that he gives to you. As one writer put it, looking at the commandments is not just you shall not, but you shall 
not. You will be transformed where this is not something that you desire anymore. Your affections can be changed. Listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a wonderful preacher from about 60 years ago, put it this way. He says, even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. No, if you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven. And I assure you of pardon. But hear the words of our blessed Lord, go and sin no more. Referring, of course, to John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. The Lord not only forgives, but calls you to be renewed and transformed. So what's our takeaway from all of this? Our takeaway is that God owns our bodies because he's bought our bodies with his own blood and his son, Jesus Christ. But he calls you to enjoy your body in his way, unselfishly. So practically, if you find yourself as like, yes, I've heard these things. I've believed the gospel, but I'm still struggling with this. Number one, welcome to the Christian faith. The fact that this is something that still bothers you and you desire to be free from it, that's a wonderful sign that the Lord is working in your heart. But what practical steps can you take? One, and I think this is the most important, is to fight your sinful pleasure with a superior one. Remind yourself of the gospel of Christ every day. And then look when the next time you feel tempted to hover your mouse over that site. Ask yourself, is this worth betraying my Lord and Savior over this? The Lord who loves me? The Lord who promises in the Psalms there are pleasures forevermore? Is this worth it? Fight a sinful pleasure with a superior one. Also remember the promises that Christ has given to you, that he is not going to tempt you with something which he does not provide a way of escape. Sometimes that way of escape can be drastic. If you can't quit the porn, it's time to cut the internet connection. If you're, with the, if you're feeling yourself moving towards this person at your work, it's time to switch jobs. That drastic? Yes. The Lord is serious about holiness. This is what he calls us to. Do whatever it takes. And another suggestion that um, Riken had given to us is that godliness in one area promotes godliness in others. Discipline yourself and other factors of your life. And that discipline will work its way over into this area. And now maybe you're saying, you know what? I appreciate this sermon, but this really just hasn't been me. Sure, we all take a glance or two, but, I'm, but I, I don't think I'll ever sin in any sort of serious way. What I would encourage you to realize is that this can come for you too. One writer had put it that the sin of adultery is waiting in your heart, biding its time. No, it won't come out all in one moment. After all, adultery begins months or even years before getting into bed. So have guardrails. Be suspicious of yourself. But most of all, stay close to Jesus. And when and if you fall, confess, embrace, and repent anew in the power of the gospel. This works the same way if you are the one that's been sinned against. Say, it's like, well, I haven't sinned in this way, but my partner sure has. 
This is where we really get to see the test of our own Christianity. Will you be willing to forgive someone who has hurt you so deeply? Now, obviously, there are exceptions. If you're being abused, if you're being physically unsafe, of course, remove yourself from that situation. Forgiveness doesn't look like putting the relationship back to exactly the way that it was when it was unsafe. But there is a call from our heart that Christ has put into us, that we are a forgiving people, that even when something horrible has happened, we're called to embrace the gospel for our partners as well. Just as God has forgiven us, we can forgive others. This is the portrait of sex and sexuality. And I hope that this will give a much clearer vision of what this is supposed to be and something that is worth talking about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together. I pray that you would comfort and and. Help those that are struggling in this area embrace the gospel and embrace the transformation that you offer in the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray for all of us that we would honor you in our bodies and that we would do so for the sake of Jesus Christ. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.